Welcome to CME on ReachMD. This activity entitled, Evaluating Your Current Options in the Treatment of NSCLC with MetExon 14, Skipping Mutations, is provided by Agile. Prior to beginning the activity, please be sure to review the faculty and commercial support disclosure statements, as well as the learning objectives. MetExon 14 skipping is observed in 3 to 4% of all non-small cell lung cancer cases. We now have two FDA-approved therapies to consider for our patients with non-small cell lung cancers harboring MedExon 14 alteration. So it's becoming increasingly important to use broad molecular profiling to ensure patients receive the appropriate targeted therapy. Do you have the tools you need to select the right therapy for the patient in front of you? This is CME on ReachMD, and I'm Dr. Paul Pack. And I'm Dr. Catherine Chu. So let's dive right into a case study. We have a 74-year-old man with a 15-pack year history of smoking who was recently diagnosed with stage 4 adenocarcinoma of the lung through a tissue biopsy. Sites of metastatic disease include the liver and the bone, but he's not terribly symptomatic from his disease. His ECOG performance status is zero. Dr. Shu, what initial steps do you take in the management of this patient? So now that we have so many great targeted treatment options, I think it's more important now than ever to perform reflex testing with a comprehensive molecular panel. At my institution, we test all lung adenocarcinomas with a reflex panel. And I think this is important because even though we have some stereotypes for which types of mutations we find in which patients, it's still not a complete typical patient and we don't want to miss any patients. The stakes are just so high. And I think that even a low pretest probability is not zero. So at our institution, we perform a reflex test. And then if that reflex DNA test is negative, we go on to do an RNA-based test. I think the RNA-based tests we know can capture a higher proportion of these MET-exon-14 skipping patients because the RNA result of the MET-exon-14 skipping is constant regardless of the underlying genomic event. So For this patient, I would start with making sure that he has a comprehensive molecular panel pending. And the other thing that I would say is I often do order a liquid biopsy because if it turns out that the tissue biopsy doesn't have enough tissue to make it through testing, then at least you have a liquid biopsy pending. So I think for this patient, we make sure that he has some sort of NGS-based panel going, and I would also perform a liquid biopsy. No, I think that's a great point, especially the reflex nature of the testing Generally speaking, when we meet a patient, we really have no idea what alteration they're going to have. So whether or not they have Egypt mutation or an ALK fusion or a Metaxon 14 skipping alteration, any of those things would be great. But like you said, we can't a priori predict who's going to have one of those things. So really, the only reliable way to find one of these things is to actually order the test on everyone in an indiscriminate manner. And so exactly. I think that's actually one of the most important points. Molecular testing in our patient confirms a Metaxon 14 skipping mutation. As far as treatment, we now have two FDA-approved targeted therapies to consider. Dr. Pack, what can you tell us about the first option, tapotinib? For those just tuning in, you're listening to CME on ReachMD. I'm Dr. Paul Pack, and here with me today is Dr. Catherine Shu. We're discussing current options in the treatment of non-small cell lung cancer patients with Medexon 14 skipping mutations. So tapotinib is a selective med inhibitor that was FDA-approved in 2021 for patients with stage four or advanced non-small cell lung cancers whose cancers do harbor Metaxon 14 skipping alteration. Vision was a signal finding single arm phase two study of tapotinib in a non-randomized fashion in this specific population. There are a couple of points that are worth highlighting, I think, for the vision study. The first is that there were two ways that patients could get onto the study. 
One way was through, as we talked about in the case before, standard tumor testing through next-gen sequencing. The other was actually through liquid biopsy. And so the data, the efficacy data that's been presented is parsed out in that fashion. Patients were liquid biopsy positive, patients were tissue biopsy positive. In addition to that, while there were no pre-specified sort of cohort numbers for analysis, patients were, 50% of patients accrued were treated in the first-line setting, 50% in the second-line setting and beyond. So the data that's been presented sort of hues to that first-line efficacy for the second-line and beyond efficacy. And it was a positive study, which is why it was FDA approved in 2021. By lines of therapy, first-line therapy patients had an overall response rate. As of the latest data update that was presented at World Lung just a couple months ago, about 60% with a median PFS of around 16 to 17 months, which is pretty good as a first-line therapy. The second-line therapy and beyond had an overall response rate of about 47% with a median PFS of 12 months. So I think overall, most of us would consider this a great option for our patients, particularly for our patients who tend to be elderly. And we really did reach that bar for what would be classified as adequate results to give in that frontline therapy. I think the last thing to talk about were the safety sort of adverse events mm-hmm. features of the study. And there's a fingerprint for safety for med inhibitors, which I sort of think about as a vascular leak phenomenon. Most of this is peripheral edema. About 60% of patients will develop peripheral edema. Most of these are grade one or two events. Very few of these are grade three events. But when you're older, and you're not as mobile, and your feet are swelling, you can't put your shoes on, it's still something of a quality of life issue to be aware of. Again, it's something that tends to be unique for med inhibition. Dr. Shu, can you discuss the other FDA-approved therapy for this driver mutation, which is catlatinib? Sure. So this is about the geometry trial, which was a multiple cohort phase two study evaluating catlatinib in two populations, in the Medexon 14 skipping population, as well as the met amplification population. Patients received catmatinib at 400 milligrams BID, and the primary endpoint was overall response. In the patients with MedExon 14 skipping, the overall response was seen in 41% of the previously treated patients, but as high as 68% in the treatment-naive patients, which goes to what you were saying before with the higher response rate in the treatment-naive patients. The median duration of response was 9.7 months and 12.6 months, respectively. The efficacy seen in the MET amplification arm was much lower, although the response was 29% in the previously treated and up to 40% in the treatment-naive patients in patients with a gene copy number of 10 or greater. The most frequent adverse events are similar to what you had discussed earlier. They were really peripheral edema, which we saw in 51% of patients, but only 9% of those were grade 3 to 4. So even though seen in many patients, really a much smaller proportion that were significant and also nausea, which was seen in 45% of patients. And there was also one death from pneumonitis that was thought to be related to the catmatinib. Now that we've outlined the clinical data for tapotinib and catmatinib, let's talk about any key distinctions between the two and have a bit of a friendly debate, keeping in mind (laughs) the patient we discussed earlier. So I think I'll start by adding a bit of a suppositional in the case. One of the things I did not mention was the pdl one TPS status, which of course we also recommend is done in a reflex fashion for all non-small cell lung cancer patients. Let's say the pdl one TPS comes back at 50%. One of the questions are different is differences between tapatinib and comatinib, but this is not in isolation. We do know that standard frontline therapy is also in the realm of immunotherapy. And so I guess the first question I have for you is, would you treat that patient with a med inhibitor or with immunotherapy, for example, like pembrolizumab, and why? That's a great question, Paul. 
I think if you ask, you know, several oncologists, you may get many different answers. However, I would still start with a MET inhibitor myself. I think that there is really great efficacy. The side effects profile, as we mentioned, is somewhat limited, and it's a PO pill. So tapotinib is a once daily and catmatinib is a twice daily pill. So there is some difference there, but really between the two drugs, I find them fairly similar. And I think that most physicians who prescribe them maybe prescribe whichever one they're more comfortable with or have been prescribing more often. But back to the immunotherapy versus the targeted therapy question, if I were a patient and I could get a great response just by taking a pill versus coming into an infusion center every few weeks, I think that that would be still my choice. How about yourself? No, I think that's right. And I think the data tend to support that insofar as we have any kind of data, which is important to note that we don't have any kind of perspective data. It really is retrospective data that our institution did and some others have done that demonstrates that patients with metoxin 14 skipping alterations, even with high pdl one expression in their tumors, do tend to be resistant to single-agent immunotherapy. So there is a concern, as with other oncogene-addicted cancers, that these are more resistant to immunotherapy. So that's the first thing. Mm-hmm. I think that leads us to have a little bit of a pause in terms of recommending that. The other is that in elderly patients, and again, patients with metoxin 14 skipping alterations tend to be elderly. Many of these patients are in their 80s when we meet them, as you know. They're not actually well represented in these pivotal randomized phase three studies of immunotherapy, even in the frontline settings. So we actually don't know what the results are in that population. So I think I tend to agree with you that most of us would end up prescribing a med inhibitor for that reason. And like you, I think it's very difficult to make comparisons, crosstalk comparisons between tapotinib and kematinib because they've not been randomized and studied in that fashion. I think one of the things that we tried to do to overcome that was to perform what's called a matching adjusted indirect comparison analysis, where we take data from two separate single arm studies, one of which at least we have sort of granular patient level data and try to sort of align the patient populations between the two and then redo an efficacy analysis to see whether or not in a more balanced fashion differences emerge. So we published this earlier this year, this MAIC analysis, where we sort of confirmed that in the upfront setting, the treatment naive setting, there are no differences for overall response rate or PFS between catmat and metapodinib. The one difference that we did see emerge in the MAIC analysis was in the second line and beyond PFS, where there was a difference, which is also evident on cross-trial comparison, actually, where the median PFS for tapotinib was 11 months and for catmatinib it was 5.5 months. Why that difference exists when they're otherwise fairly similar drugs, no one really knows, but that difference does, in fact, exist on MAIC, even on cross-trial comparison. So I think that's one of the differences mm-hmm. that's there. I think the last thing that I'll mention is that, you know, dosing does tend to matter in the elderly population. Polypharmacy is an issue for these folks. And so catmatinib is a number of pills taken twice daily. Tapotinib is two pills taken once daily. And that tends to simplify the regimen for these patients and dose modifications. Well, this has been a great discussion, Dr. Pack. But before we wrap up, can you share your one take-home message with our audience? My take-home message is that the sort of advances we make in non-small cell lung cancer haven't stopped. They continue to march on. Medexam 14 skipping alterations are found at 3 to 4% of patients. This is something that's pretty new. I think at a time when we thought, many of us, that we'd exhausted finding any new actual alterations. And I find that terribly encouraging. I think it's particularly important for patients with these alterations because, as we said before, they tend to be elderly. They are often left out of the pivotal trial, so we don't really know what the best treatment options 
are for these patients, and they do have a unique set of circumstances, comorbidities that we have to take into consideration. And so the set of drugs is really a great option for these folks. Well, those were great points, Dr. Pack. I think my main takeaway is probably around detection, because as we know, if you don't find it, you can't treat it. So for me, I would say test all lung adenocarcinomas with some sort of next generation sequencing test. And if the DNA-based test is negative, I would encourage you to look onwards with an RNA-based test. I'd like to thank our audience for listening in. And thank you, Dr. Shu, for joining me and sharing all of your valuable insights. It was great speaking with you today. My pleasure. And same to you. You've been listening to CME on ReachMD. This activity is provided by Agile. To receive your free CME credit or to download this activity, go to reachmd.com slash agile. Thank you for listening.